0: If there's anything universal about people in power, it's the need to control perception. So image management. In fact, you're watching it right now with the things going on with Russia and the Ukraine. Because Vladimir Putin is constantly trying to control public perception. So the Russians in Russia might think of him one way and the Russians in Ukraine another way and the Americans a different way altogether. But it's all just image Management, isn't it? And there's nothing new under the sun. Franklin Roosevelt did the exact same thing. If you remember, FDR was disabled by polio, which confined him to a wheelchair. But despite that reality, he required the press to never, ever photograph him in the wheelchair or walking or approaching the podium to speak. Why did he do that? Well, because he was afraid that would give the perception of weakness. Perhaps no other ruler understood image management more than Queen Elizabeth I. She ascended to the throne at the age of 25, ruled and reigned over England for over 44 years, during which time there were great trials and tribulations, wars, rumors of wars, and political upheavals. Here's what you probably don't know. Just three years after she took the throne, so age 28, she contracted smallpox, which left her face badly scarred. So she was forced to wear makeup to cover up all the scars. But as she aged, her appearance went from bad to worse. So the scars deepened, her, her hair actually fell out, and her teeth turned black. In fact, her image became so bad that she refused to have mirrors in any of her rooms. Now, you might be thinking, that's strange. If I'm remembering correctly, we have tons of portraits of Elizabeth I. She always looks perfect in her portraits with an air of dignity and beauty. Looks as if she hasn't aged. Well, and of course, you're right. We do have lots of portraits, but she didn't pose for any of them. Instead, a template was made, coined the mask of youth, and all the artists were required to adhere to its standards. So if you line up all the portraits made over the years, you'll quickly notice her face doesn't change at all in any of the pictures. She doesn't seem to age at all. Why? Well, because Elizabeth I understood image management. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Well, because God's approach to image management is quite different Earthly rulers go to great lengths to manage image, releasing statements, controlling photographs, and even creating masks. Whereas God has absolutely no restrictions in place for making himself completely, 100% known to all people everywhere through his word and ultimately through the Lord Jesus. He wants you to know him perfectly. He wants you to see him clearly for who he really is. But what he doesn't allow is for you to create images of him in order to try and control his public perception. So God commands that no human-generated image shall be made because no human-generated image can be made. Because no physical image could ever truly capture the reality of God's infinite beauty, his majesty, and his holiness. So commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Worship God exclusively this morning. Commandment number two, you shall make for yourselves no graven images so that we might worship God rightly as he's revealed himself to be. Hence the title of my sermon this morning, Undiminished Worship. So not just the right object of our worship, but the right means of our worship. So if you would go ahead and open... Your Bible's with me to Exodus chapter 20. It's on page 61. I also encourage you to grab my outline from the bulletin. Three points this morning, morning. Commandment given, commandment fulfilled, commandment applied. Exodus 20, follow along as I read verses 1 to 6. God spoke all these words saying... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now again, those words don't come out of nowhere, but instead there's a context to the Ten Commandments. And I very much want to make sure that we understand that. Because in the last four months, Israel has experienced some pretty incredible things. Watching firsthand as God delivered them out of Egypt by his efforts alone. He delivered them his power alone. So they watched God judge the Egyptians through the ten plagues, part the Red Seas through Moses, destroy the entire Egyptian army, and provide and protect for them water out of a rock, bread from heaven, and even defeating the Amalekites. Why the history lesson? Because God is a God who saves. So we have to remember the first half of Exodus for the Ten Commandments to make any sense at all. God is a God who saves. And that God, the God who saved them, descends on Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, with thunder and lightning, cloud, smoke and fire, and the trumpet blast growing louder and louder as God comes closer and closer, also that Israel might know this God is their God, and that he has every right in the world to issue commands. He saved them. Now he commands them so that they might live in a right relationship with him, starting with the command to worship God exclusively. But God continues thundering, right? He's speaking through the thunder and the lightning and the smoke and the fire and the cloud, his second commandment you shall not make for yourself. A carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heavens or on the earth or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them and you shall not serve them. So let's start by trying to understand B, the content of the commandment. Because at first glance, it sure sounds very similar to the first commandment. That you shall have no other gods before me. Worship God exclusively. Meaning... Don't worship idols. Now he says, second commandment, don't create any images, meaning don't create idols, don't create them, don't bow down to them, don't serve them, which summarized, sure sounds a lot like what he just said with the first commandment, worship God exclusively. And if the second commandment stood alone, meaning it wasn't coming right after the first commandment, that would make total sense. It would, it would be the natural for us to conclude. He's talking about times like in the days of the judges when the Israelites hoard after other gods, bowed down and served them. But the second commandment is coming right after the first commandment. So it has to be understood in context. J.I. Packer is helpful here. He says, idolatry consists not only in the worship of false gods, first commandment, but also in the worship of the one true God by way of images. So the first commandment deals with the object of our worship, that we must worship God exclusively, whereas the second commandment deals not with the object of our worship, but the manner of our worship. That we must worship God rightly, not through the means of statues Pictures or any other man made image. So the first commandment is all about the object of our worship worship God exclusively, where the second commandment is all about the manner of our worship that we must worship God rightly as he has revealed himself to be. Now, why is that? Well, I've listed two reasons right here in your outline. Number one, images dishonor God because they obscure his glory. And then number two, images mislead the people because they convey falsehood. So let's think about them one at a time. Number one, images dishonor God because they obscure his glory. So, so the likeness of things in heaven, sun, moon, and stars, or the likeness of things on earth, men, birds, and animals, or the likeness of things in the sea, fish, whales, and turtles, essentially are never going to cut it. Right? Right? They can't represent God. John Calvin wrote, A true image of God is not to be found in all the world. His glory is defiled by the unholy and his truth corrupted by lies. Which is exactly what happens whenever he is set before our eyes in a visible man-made form. Therefore, to devise any image of God is sacrilegious because by this corruption, the Lord God is adulterated. Because he is figured to be something other than who he really is. So the problem is not just that an image represents God as having a body with arms and legs, though God has none of those things, right? John 4 tells us God is spirit. The issue goes much deeper than that. The problem with pictures, statues, and images is that they inevitably conceal most, if not all, of who God is His nature, His character, His attributes. They, they can't possibly be captured in an image. You know, a great illustration of this would, would be if you go to the Grand Canyon, right? right you go visit the Grand Canyon. And you stand there in total awe and wonder. It's incredible. It is so impressive, right? And then what does everybody do as they stand there in awe and wonder? Well, they pull out their phone and they try to capture that in a picture. Then they come home to their friends and they show them the picture and they say things like, well, that really doesn't do it justice Because it's really awe and wonder. The picture can't possibly capture the awe and wonder of the Grand Canyon. Number one, images dishonor God because they obscure his glory. That's not the only problem. Number two, images also mislead people because they convey that which is false about God. So, the very inadequacy of any created image ultimately perverts and pollutes and communicates all sorts of wrong ideas about who God is. The image actually plants errors into our minds regarding the character of God, the will of God, and the person of God who he is, what he's like, and how we should perceive him, approach him, and think about him. Again, J.I. Packer is helpful. He says, psychologically, it is certain that if you habitually focus your thoughts on an image of God or a picture of God to whom you are praying, you will come to think of him and to pray to him and worship him as the image in your mind represents him to be. Thus, you will, in a sense, bow down and worship that image. And to the extent that the image fails to tell you the whole truth and nothing about, nothing but the truth about who God is, to that extent, you will fail to worship God rightly. That is why God forbids us to use images, pictures, or statues in our worship of Him. So, the first commandment worship God exclusively. The second commandment worship God rightly as he revealed himself to be, rather than through images which dishonor God because they obscure his glory, and images that mislead us because they inevitably convey falsehood about who the God of the Bible really is. Now, as we transition, I want to give you a a helpful connection right out of the Old Testament, at least a helpful connection from my perspective. So see, conclusion of the commandment you would, go ahead and flip forward to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy 4, verse 11, page 148. Verse 11 says, and you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness cloud And gloom. So, this is obviously referring to Mount Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments. Verse 12 Then the people spoke to you, then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. Notice, you heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone, and the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules, that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Oreb out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly. How? How? by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, male or female, animal, wing, bird, anything that creeps on the ground. Well, what is the connection? The connection and the conclusion is since you saw no form, create no form. Essentially saying, don't try to make God up in your own imagination. Instead, hear his voice, keep his commands, and worship him as he has revealed himself to be. So negatively, the second command is a warning against ways of worship that dishonor God or think wrongly about God. Positively, it's a call to recognize that God is transcendent. He is mysterious, majestic, and he is holy. So he's beyond the range of our own imaginations. So what should we do? We should humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We should listen to him, learn from him, and let him teach us so we might know who he is, what he's like, and how to respond rightly to him. That's number one, commandment given. Now number two, the commandment fulfilled. As we move forward in redemptive history, we will see over and over again, A, how this commandment was failed by Israel. Let me give you just three examples, starting with the first that happened almost before God even stopped speaking from Mount Sinai. If you would, go ahead and flip back to Exodus, Exodus 32. Exodus 20 to Exodus 32. It happens in moments. Very, very quickly. I'll set the scene for you. God is booming out these commands. Speaking out of the thunder and the lightning, the smoke and the fire. And the people are so afraid that they say to Moses, you speak to us, not God. So, so Moses, you go up on the mountain and, and you go and talk with God. And then you come back and you tell us what he says. So Moses heads up Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. And while he's gone... This is what takes place. Number one, the sin of the golden calf. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together and said to Aaron, up, make gods for us. Make make us gods who shall go before us. And for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. What do you mean you don't know what became of him? He just went up on the mountain, not, not a couple days ago, right? So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, notice, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now now be clear, Yahweh is the one who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. So they are claiming here that, that this God, the God of their own making, the golden calf, represents Yahweh. That's incredible. Verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow you shall shall be a feast. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. So the God of the Bible who delivered them out of Exodus in this miraculous salvation is now going to be worshipped in a golden calf says and they rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play quick question why a golden calf why not a golden eagle why not a golden squirrel (laughs) or a golden lion Well, remember where Israel is currently located, right? They're they're between Egypt and Canaan. Well, one of the major gods of Egypt was the bull god Apis. And it turns out that the main god of Canaan was the bull god El. So apparently bull worship was the rage in this ancient Near Eastern region. But Aaron doesn't make a golden bull, does he? He makes a golden calf. Jen Wilkins explains, when Aaron conceives of Yahweh in his own imagination, he creates a non-threatening, approachable, mild version of the gods in their surrounding nations. So pull it all together. Because Aaron creates this golden calf as an image of the invincible, invisible, one true God of the Bible, Yahweh. So not a a lesser God or a different God, but an image of God. And then they go ahead and worship that image with a feast, burnt offerings, peace offerings, the whole nine yards. Unbelievable. Think with me about this. Because the image so clearly lies about who God really is. Think about the enormity of the lie. The golden calf is small. God is immense. It's solid. God is spirit. It's location bound. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. It's new. God's eternal. He is the ancient of days. It's of limited to no value. God is priceless. It's impotent. God is all powerful. It's destructible. God's indestructible. It is blind and mute and deaf and dumb. God sees. He hears. He speaks. And in him is all wisdom. The golden calf is created. He's the creator. The golden calf is dead. God is alive. Do you see what I mean? This image so badly dishonors God because it obscures his glory and it misleads the people because it communicates that which is false about who God is, what he's like, and how we should respond rightly to him. Number one, the sin of the golden calf. Number two, the sin of the nation, specifically during the days of Isaiah. So if you would flip forward to Isaiah chapter 2, page 567. Now I have one point here as we go to Isaiah And that's the highlight that the main sin of Israel was the sin of creating gods in their own image and then worshiping them. And that's the case from the start of Isaiah to the end of Isaiah. So we're going to grab some verses from the beginning of Isaiah. And then we're going to grab verses from the end of Isaiah. And we're going to make the connection that this is true in all of Isaiah. As we do that, here's the take-home message right up front. You are... What you worship. You become what you behold. So let's skip through Isaiah. Starting Isaiah chapter 2 verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people the house of Jacob. Why? Because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Verse 7, their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Look at verse 8, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their own hands, to what their own fingers have made. What's the issue? It's making idols with their own hands, creating images of God and worshiping them. Flip to the end of Isaiah, Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verse 14. God says, For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste to mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. Why is God so mad? What's the problem? Verse 17, they are turned back and utterly put to shame. Who? Who is put to shame? Those who trust in carved idols. Those who say to metal images, you are our gods. What's the result? You are what you worship. You become what you behold. Since in Israel worships inanimate objects, they become like inanimate objects. Verse 18, God says, hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of the Lord? Is he talking about the idols? No, he's talking about Israel. He sees many things but does not observe them. His eyes, his ears are open, but he does not hear. Israel becomes like the idols they worship. Inanimate objects who can't see the glory of God, can't hear the word of God, can't observe it, can't understand it, can't gain from the message, can't take it in or have any benefit to their soul in any way. It is painful to watch this take place. Because they're so close to that which is holy and righteous and good. And yet they make the conscious decision. To exchange the glory of the infinite holy God. For images. Resembling mortal man, birds and animals of their own creation. Sin of the golden calf. Sin of the nation. Now number three. The sin of idol worship. Turn with me. Back to Psalm 115. So flipping back, Psalm 115. Psalm 115, in my mind, locks down this idea of becoming what you behold. Also transitions us so beautifully to the Lord Jesus. Psalm 115, picking it up in verse 4. The psalmist says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Now look at what the psalmist says, verse 8. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Here's the question, what's the remedy for all those who make for themselves carved images or any likeness in heaven on earth or under the earth who create God in their own mind and worship their creation rather than their creator? What is the solution? The psalmist tells us, verse nine: "O Israel, Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And for you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is your help. He is your shield. Now, As we transition from A, failed by Israel, to B, fulfilled in Christ, I want you to be crystal clear that all people everywhere fail in this regard. So there's not a single person who doesn't create God in their own imagination and doesn't turn around and worship that of their own creation rather than the creator. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But my point is we absolutely need the Lord Jesus Christ not only to fulfill the second commandment but to obey every one of God's commandments. So that he can be perfectly righteous, so that he can be our perfect substitute for our sins when he dies on the cross, so that that's what we need. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. We need his righteousness. He is the perfect covenant keeper. All we're doing this morning is looking at how he specifically fulfills the second commandment in his life and in his teaching And to no one's surprise, it's very similar to what we looked at last week. But go ahead and flip forward with me to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, page 810. As we talked about last week, Matthew sets up his entire gospel so that we might see Jesus as the greater than Moses including speaking from the mountain. Verse 1 says, Matthew 5, verse 1, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Notice verse 2. Jesus opened his mouth, and Jesus taught them. What did he teach them? Well, flip to verse 17. One of the things he taught them, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Verse 18. For truly I say to you. Is everybody clear that Jesus is speaking? Jesus is speaking, right? He's the one who's declaring these things to be true. Well, then let me ask you this question. Who was speaking the Ten Commandments back in Exodus 20? God was speaking. God was booming out of the thunder and the lightning. Not Moses. Moses was listening. God was speaking. Jesus is speaking. What is Jesus saying? Look at verse 21. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. Verse 22, but I say to you, Verse 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say to you. Jesus is clearly speaking in the place of God. Here's the question. Is Jesus dishonoring God? Is Jesus obscuring his glory in any way? No, he speaks with divine Authority And he brings greater clarity to the glory of God. What does it look like to worship God and love his people? So number one, Jesus is clarifying God's glory, not only in his teaching, but in his entire life. His actions, his speech, his attitude, his love for people, his willingness to provide and protect, sacrificing his own life for their salvation. Why? Why does he do that? Because God is a God who saves. That's who He is, seen most clearly in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus isn't a created image of God, dishonoring God by obscuring His glory, but instead, Hebrews 1 3 says, He's the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of His nature. So Jesus fulfills the second commandment because he brings even greater clarity to the glory of God. He helps us to better understand who God is, what God's like, his person, his work, his attributes, his character. In fact, if you remember Exodus 34, right after the whole you know, golden calf debacle, right, Moses intercedes for the people and while doing so says to God, what does he say to God? He makes this incredible request. He says, show me your glory. And when God passes by, he declares exactly who he is. He declares his name. He gives us a picture of what his glory looks like. He says, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. How does Moses respond? Exodus 34, he bows down. And he worships God. But what's the summary of God's name? What does it mean to see God's glory? Well, it's to behold grace and truth. That's who he is. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And yet by no means clearing the guilty. What is that? That's grace. And that's truth. Well, now just think about what John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as the only Son, from the Father full of what? Grace and truth. Verse 17 clarifies, in case you missed it, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Then John says this. No one has ever seen God, the only God, but he, Jesus, made him known to us. Jesus fulfills the second commandment because Jesus is God. That's who he is. But Jesus also fulfills the second commandment because Jesus makes God known to us, both in his person and his work and in the way in which, number two, he communicates truth. Now, we could obviously go to a number of places to see this, but if you would, since we're in the Gospel of John, let's flip forward to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, page 890. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Context of this passage, Jesus just healed a Blind, lame, and paralyzed man who's been sitting by the pool at Bethesda for 38 years. Problem is not the healing. The problem is that he healed the man on the Sabbath. Look at verse 16. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. We're given some pretty helpful information here. Verse 17, Jesus answered them, My father is working until now. And I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath. But he was calling God his own father. Look at this. Making him equal with God. So Jesus said to them. Truly, truly, I say to you. The son can do nothing of his own accord. But only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does. That the son does likewise. For the father loves the son. And shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Look at this. That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father Who sent him? Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his nature. Jesus clarifies God's glory, and Jesus communicates God's truth. Here's the truth he communicates. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now remember the second commandment. You shall not make for yourselves any created image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? Because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do you understand? The second commandment states that we must worship God as he has revealed himself to be. But God has revealed himself to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is God. And Jesus makes the same declaration as the second commandment right here. That those who reject his word and hate his name will be judged for all eternity. But those who hear his word, believe in his name, obey his commands, will experience the glory of eternal life in his presence for all eternity. How is that possible? Because Jesus perfectly obeyed God's commands. So he is perfectly righteous in all of his ways which makes him a perfect substitute for our sins when he dies on the cross. We absolutely need Jesus. We need his sinless life. We need his sacrifice on the cross. We need him to be our perfect covenant keeper so that we can be reconciled to God for all eternity. Here's the question. What exactly does that look like for us this morning commandment given commandment fulfilled number three commandment applied well our first response has got to be a to worship God as he's revealed himself to be specifically in the Lord Jesus Christ because the God of the universe came down not only at Mount Sinai but also in the person of Christ who lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, and extends to all of us the glorious offer of salvation. That's John five twenty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That life is only available in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, do you recognize the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus? He alone is the Savior of the world. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the exclusivity of Jesus. But even in that context, John chapter 14, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. How does Jesus respond? He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He and I. Are one. I desperately want you to understand that obeying the second commandment starts when you put your faith in Christ, because that's when you not only worship God exclusively, but you worship God rightly. Be clear. If you claim to know the God of the Bible and yet have not yet put your faith in Christ, then you don't really know the God of the Bible, because you're not responding to him as he's revealed himself to be in and through the Lord Jesus. So if that's you this morning, then I plead with you to obey the second commandment by putting your faith in Jesus. That's what it means to worship God rightly. So A, worship God as revealed. Then B, worship God as commandment, as commanded. Now, dear believer, you might be sitting there this morning thinking to yourself, you know, that's all great and good, but none of that really applies to me. I mean, I don't make images of God. I don't even have pictures of Jesus in my house. Don't bow down to anything or use anything, cross or beads or even a Bible when I'm praying. So how could I possibly be breaking the second commandment? Well, I would suggest that imagining a God in your own minds can be just as much a breach of the second commandment as creating a God by your own hands. Remember what Israel did in Exodus 32 with the golden calf. What were they doing? They were making a non-threatening, more approachable, mild version of the God of the Bible that was just a little bit more palatable for the people around them. Don't you think in our day and age and in our culture that we're tempted to do the exact same thing? So when sharing the gospel, you might have a tendency to highlight God's love and kindness, His grace and His mercy rather than talking about the reality of God's wrath or God's judgment we'll just tone him down a little bit we'll just make him a little bit more palatable for the people who we're talking to rather than making him fully known don't you see how that's dishonoring to God? And that's misleading to the people you're talking with because you're obscuring God's glory by communicating that which is not entirely true about God. So, in that sense, we're producing graven images. Jen Wilkins says it this way We whittle down God's transcendence, we paint over God's sovereignty. And we chisel away at God's omnipotence until he's a pet-like version of the God of the Bible so that we can never be accused by unbelievers to be so foolish as to actually believe in him. I'll tell you, here's a great example. Just think about the prosperity gospel. Don't you see how whittled down Painted over and chiseled away, God becomes the one who calls and commands us to serve and to sacrifice and to suffer for his name's sake by creating a God who responds to name it, claim it. If you want it, it's yours. No problems, no question asked. Surely God would want to give you whatever you want. So they create a God who doesn't want you to be uncomfortable or broke because who would want to worship a God like that? Brothers and sisters, here's the question. Are you worshiping the God of the Bible as he's revealed himself to be in the Lord Jesus Christ? The best way to know that is not what you do alone in the comfort of your own home, Best way to know that is by the message that you're sharing with others. Are you sanding off the edges? Are you rounding down the corners? Are you obscuring God's glory by communicating things that are less than true about God? Are you prone to highlight God's love while minimizing God's wrath? Just leaning into God's mercy while neglecting God's justice. Oh, I pray that we would worship God exclusively, but I also pray that we would worship God rightly by presenting Him just the way He is as the God of the Bible who offers both grace and mercy and a glorious salvation to anyone who but believes in Him but who also warns people of his justice and his judgment for all those who choose not to believe. That's the God of the Bible. That's who God revealed himself to be. May we worship him exclusively, and may we worship him rightly through faith in the Lord Jesus. Allow me to pray. Father, we come before you, and we confess. As we make our way through these Ten Commandments, we come to church just hoping that one of these commands won't leave us guilty. And yet, Father, they expose our hearts. And we so quickly recognize that we're prone to worship false gods And we're prone to worship of God of our own imagination. Father, when when conviction comes, when we recognize that we're guilty of those sins, I pray that we would not just try harder, but instead we would look to the Lord Jesus, who obeyed your commandments perfectly, who is our perfect righteousness. God in the flesh, who came to die for our sins, crucified, dead, and buried, rose again on the third day. Help us to look to him. And then by faith in Christ and the power of your spirit, cause us to be a people who in greater and greater ways worship you exclusively and worship you rightly. Father, do that good work for our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.